Exciting. So Daniel chapter 7, uh, take out your smartphones, your Bibles, and let's go there. We're going to read from uh, the first eight verses in a little bit, but uh, whenever I mentioned uh, that I was preaching a message series on the book of Daniel, even when I was preparing it, and I mentioned to my, my pastor friends, I have some friends who are pastors, uh, that I was preaching on Daniel, the same question was asked every single time. And the question was this, are you going to go past Daniel chapter 6? <laughs> because if you know the book of Daniel, you know that Daniel 1 through 6 is history, narrative, exciting stories, uh, dramas, between the faithful four of Israel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and the kings of Mede and, and Persia and all that. And those are exciting stories, and frankly, they're fun to preach. But then you get to Daniel chapter 7, and it introduces what theologians call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Uh, and, and really, the story kind of just comes to a screeching halt and it's one of those parts of the Bible that if you read through the Bible every year, it's probably one of those weeks that you read through the Bible and you're just like, I want to get through this as quickly as possible because I have no idea what this means. It's very confusing. And that's essentially what the rest of Daniel is. So everybody would ask me, are you going to go past Daniel chapter 6? And I'm proud to say that I am going to go past Daniel chapter 6. I'm going to go past Daniel chapter 6 for one chapter. That's how gutsy I am. And we are going to talk about some apocalyptic literature here in Daniel chapter 7. Now, let's explain apocalyptic literature. What, what does apocalypse mean? Apocalypse literally is uh, defined as a revelation of events to come. A revelation of things to come. So, Daniel is a very interesting book. It has history and then it has prophecy and really is categorized as a prophetic book. And Jesus calls Daniel a prophet. So, um, Daniel is talking for the rest of the book about what is to come. Now, in our country, there is no shortage of obsession and intrigue and fascination with the apocalypse. Uh, any Walking Dead fans in the house today? Yes, we're praying for your repentance. Praise God. Um, <laughs> but, but that's an apocalyptic genre. Uh, there's a lot of movies on the apocalypse. Uh, in, in, in the last three years, in the last three years, since 2010, Hollywood has produced 40 movies on the apocalypse. 40. Movies like The Book of Eli and, and, um, and, and World War Z and, and so on and so forth. And, and so this is a trend in our culture. At that rate, by the end of this decade, we will have seen or we will have released 120 apocalyptic movies. 120. That's crazy. When you consider that the previous decade, the 2000 to 2010 decade, there were only 60 apocalyptic movies. And the decade of the 1990s, there were only 30 apocalyptic movies. And the 1980s, only 15 apocalyptic movies. So this is a growing trend in our society of this fascination with how uh, this world is going to come to an end. So I hesitate to preach about the apocalypse. Uh, you, you've been, if you've been here any amount of time, you probably know that I don't really spend a lot of time in the books of Revelation, Thessalonians, and, and so on and so forth. It's not because I, I don't want to, and someday we will again, but I have in the past, and, and I tend to shy away from apocalyptic sermons because this is, the, this is the main reason, because the evangelical church in America over the last 40 years has really made some boneheaded moves when it comes to the apocalypse. 
boneheaded. In 1977, a book was released. And if you were in the church in the 1980s, or a church like mine in the 1980s and 1990s, most of the sermons about the end times were based on this book. The book was called The Late Great Planet Earth by a man named Hal Lindsey. Most of the sermons that you heard about the end times, about Revelation, about Daniel, and the ten horns of this, this world-dominating regime, they were not based on the Bible. They were based on his interpretation of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 12 and 13. And most of his claims to this point have been debunked. Uh, one of the things that he makes a claim about in that book is that there would be a European Union of 10 countries representing the 10 horns of Daniel. One horn would rise above all of them, wipe out three of them, and then dominate the world. Now the problem with that is that when he wrote the book, there were six countries in the European Union. Today there are 28. At no point in the history of the European Union has there ever been 10 countries in that union. So that's kind of been debunked. It's, it's just not there. And what we do sometimes is we, we listen to one man's interpretation and we ignore the revelation of Scripture. And, and so I hesitate to preach on the apocalypse because of that. In the 1980s, he came out with another book. The book was called The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. In that book, he said these words. The decade of the 1980s could very well be the last decade of history as we know it. And here we are today. Uh, later in the 1980s, a man named Edgar Wisenant uh, wrote a book, and the book was titled this, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ Will Return in 1988. And he said it was going to be either September 12th, 11th, or 14th, uh, September 10th, 11th, or 12th, uh, during Rosh Hashanah, a Jewish festival, that Jesus would return in 1988. Jesus did not return in 1988 because I'm still here. <laughs> not to be outdone, he came out with another book the very next year. I kid you not, the name of the book was 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1989. I don't know who's buying these books, but I have a book to sell them. Um, a few years ago, uh, in, in 2011, a man came out. He had a radio show. Many of you remember this. He said that May 21st, 2011 would be the end of the world. Jesus was coming back. He had billboards. He had billboards in New England. He had bill Christian billboards in New England <laughs> saying that May 21st was the end of the world. I couldn't believe it. When I saw it, I would drive on the highway. I said, who put that up? If you were here, you remember that I preached the weekend before, May 21st, 2011, and I said at the end of the sermon, I'll see you next week. <laughs> if you were here, you remember that. So uh, we make a lot of bonehead predictions. Last year, or two years ago, a man named Jack Van Impe claimed that the end of the world, or when Jesus would return, would be 2012. And so on and on and on it goes. There are no, there's like no end to these boneheaded predictions about when Jesus would come back or is going to come back. And, and I don't know what Jesus these men are listening to, but it's not the Jesus that I've read. When Matthew 24 says, as clear as it can, Jesus saying, verse 36, concerning that day, the day that he comes back, and concerning that hour, please read the next three words with me. No one knows. 
No one knows. Can we say those three words really loud? No one knows. Okay, so the next time you hear a preacher say it is September 14th, 2017, I want you to shout back at your television or radio. No one knows. We don't know. Look at what Jesus said. Not even the angels know. The sun doesn't even, he said, I don't even know. I just know that at some point in eternity, my dad's going to say, go get him. <laughs> Nobody knows, only the father knows. So with that in mind, that's why I hesitate to preach on the end times. And then the third and final reason why I hesitate to preach on the end times is because when we emphasize and and when we obsess about the end of the world, we tend to forget that we are here to reach the world. We are not here to just wait for Jesus to come back. We are here to do business. What is the business? Matthew 28, 19, that we go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We are here to tell people about the love of God expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ. That is our mission. That is our calling. That is what I will preach until my dying day or until the Lord Jesus Christ returns again. So we aren't here to speculate. And if you're looking for one of those messages that are going to give you dates, times, and who's, and what's, and how's, and when's, um, you're going to be sadly disappointed. But I am going to give you some key ideas for the end of the world that you need to keep in your heart, which I believe God gives to Daniel in chapter seven. So with that in mind, the title of my message is, and you gotta fill in the blank here on your notes, what to pack for the apocalypse. <laughs> Daniel chapter seven, let's read together from verse, verse one, what to pack for the apocalypse. Can we stand together and read together from the, from the seventh chapter of Daniel? And I, just warning now, I told you it was confusing, so be prepared. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and had visions of his head as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much, fle much flesh. Verse 6. After this, I looked, and behold, another beast, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And, and, and the beast had four heads, and dominion, somebody say dominion, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left in its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Skip with me to verse 17. Or verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So Daniel is as confused as we would be. And he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Verse 17, these four beasts, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words that you have given to Daniel will speak to us. I pray that our ears will be open and our hearts will be receptive to what you're saying. Help us, Lord, not to read into the Bible what we want to hear, but help us to receive from the Bible what you want to say. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. God bless. Have a seat. What to pack for the apocalypse. Daniel is given this confusing vision. The vision is of four beasts. And they arise out of the sea. The sea in the scriptures is a symbol of two things. In the Old Testament, the sea is a symbol of chaos. You remember that the Bible says that the sea covered the earth in the creation account and the whole earth was filled with chaos. It was formless. It was void. And the, and the Holy Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep and God caused ground to come forth from the deep, bringing order. The second thing that the sea is a symbol of in the Old Testament is that the sea is a symbol of the nations of the world. And it is an appropriate symbol. Because when you go to the ocean, what do you see? You see waves. You see foam. You see crashing waves, crashing against each other, creating havoc, hitting each other, and, and, and clawing toward the land, trying to get on top of that land, but every once in a while, it comes up, and then it comes back. Even just this past day, there was a huge problem with the sea in the Philippines. The sea is a symbol of chaos, but in the scriptures, is a symbol of the rage of nations. That for as long as history has been recorded, we know that humanity has been raging against itself. And the first thing that we need to pack for the apocalypse is number one, if you're taking notes, a clear picture of humanity. This is what God gives to Daniel in the first part of this chapter. Daniel, there's going to be four beasts coming from the earth. What are they? They're four kingdoms. If you remember from a few weeks back, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue, the head of gold, the chest of silver, the torso of bronze, the legs of iron. Well, those four kingdoms, Babylon, Medes and Persians, uh, Greeks, and then the Romans, that's exactly the same four beasts that are coming forth from the sea in Daniel 7. That these kingdoms keep clawing their way into places of prominence. And Daniel is being shown this is the record of human history. For as long as we've been around, we have been killing each other and devouring each other. In the very first family, there were two sons, and only one of them survived past a few weeks. <laughs> poor Seth, a poor Abel, was killed by his jealous older brother, Cain. And since that day, humanity has been angry at each other, has been hurting each other, has been dominating 
each other. And we may not do that on a grand scale in this country, but if you go overseas, there is chaos abounding in all kinds of countries. In fact, there has never been a time in the history of the world where one nation hasn't been trying to dominate and control and subjugate another nation. This is the reality of our hearts. The reality of our hearts is that we are filled with sin, and if there is one record of Scripture from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, it is this, that human beings have a propensity toward wickedness and evil. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's the record of our lives. That's the record of our hearts that reside in all of us. Genesis 8, 21, the same chapter, a little bit later, says this, same, same book. For the intention of man's heart is evil from when? From his youth. And everybody with children said, amen, pastor. You don't have to teach your children to hurt each other. You don't have to teach your children to be jealous of each other. You don't have to teach your children to say, mine. It comes with their standard DNA operational procedures preloaded in every operating system of every human being. Psalm 14.1 says, there is none who does what is good. There is none. Ecclesiastes 7.20, written by the smartest man that ever lived outside of Jesus, Solomon. He said, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In other words, everybody's got a problem. Jeremiah 17, 9, what's the problem? The problem is the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. And look at these words, desperately sick. Who can understand it? We all know this is the truth. Every addict in the house, listen to me, I know you hate it when I say this, but alcoholism is not the disease. The disease is your heart. And it produces alcoholism and drug addiction. And not just that, but pornography addiction. And, and lust for the opposite sex. Or, or desire for the same sex. Or, or some other uh, unholy, carnal uh, jealousy, bitterness, rage, envy. It doesn't come from some parent. It comes from your heart. And every single one of us has a diseased heart inside of us. This is the problem that Daniel is being shown in chapter 7. Jesus comes on the scene. In Matthew, does it get any better? No. He actually tells us, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, come murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Notice that Jesus didn't say out of HBO comes these things. No, 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 they come from the heart. And this, he was saying to Jews who consider themselves pretty holy. Romans chapter seven, verse 18, Paul the apostle, the greatest apostle that ever walked the face of the earth, the man who brought the gospel all over the known world, the man who God used to write over half the New Testament. Do you know what he said about his own heart? Here's what he writes in chapter 7 of Romans. I know that nothing good 
dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And everybody who feels the same way says amen. It's our problem. We have a sick heart. Daniel sees these four kingdoms rise out of the sea and try to grasp for world domination. Is that not what Hitler wanted? Is that not what Mao wanted? Is that not what Stalin wanted? Is that not what people in in, in the world today want? They want to dominate somebody else. By the way, what was mankind given right after he was created in the image and likeness of God? Dominion. And then mankind sinned and lost dominion. And we have been struggling to get it back ever since. The problem is that we've been doing it on our own terms. And so this quest to be on top is a symbol of what's wrong with our hearts. History is a long, tortured story of the problem of sin. And even today, in what we would call a civilized country, did you know that America is home to 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's criminals? America, such a civilized country, our prison population is skyrocketing. Did you know that yesterday there were two public shootings? Two. These used to be front page news. Now do you know where they put them? They put them on the ticker at the bottom of the regular newscast that talks about worst things. This this is where we are at as a country. And it doesn't look like it's getting any better for no matter how educated we get, no matter how technologically advanced we get, no matter how evolved science wants to claim we are becoming, we are systematically ever more producing ways of destroying and dominating one another. What's the problem? The problem is the heart. We've lost dominion and we struggle to get it back our civilized country which 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 seems so right god bless america is home to the most destructive weapons in human history the push of a button can wipe out a city a country a continent this is the problem that we need to understand when it comes to the apocalypse. And the first thing that Daniel sees from the, from the Lord is a clear picture of humanity. And I'm telling you, it's going to help you in just a moment. The second thing, the story goes, the, 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 the chapter goes on, verse 9. And I don't have this on the screen, so you're going to have to look at me, look at your Bibles with me. Verse 9, Daniel 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days, somebody say ancient of days. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. And the court, 
and the courts, Daniel says. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The second thing that you need to pack for the apocalypse is a clear picture of the Father. This image of the Ancient of Days that Daniel sees is none other than the Eternal Father. And please notice with me that this is a distinct picture. Daniel sees what he looks like. We don't ever see this in any other part of Scripture. In fact, I realized this week that most of the scriptures that we think is is the father is really the son. At the burning bush with Moses, it was the son. In the burning fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, it was the son. In Joshua chapter 5, when Joshua bows on his face before the captain of the army of the Lord of hosts, it's the son. All throughout scripture, most of the time we think we're seeing the father. We're not. We're seeing God the Son, pre-incarnate. This, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, is one of the rare moments where somebody sees the Father. And notice the description. His hair is pure wool. His clothes are pure white. What does that mean? The Father is absolutely pure. For as Impure as we are, that's how pure God the Father is. Flames of fire encompassed his throne. What is fire a picture of all throughout the scripture? Holiness. God is absolutely pure. God the Father is absolutely holy. And no one can stand before him. He has no sin, he has no corruption, he is untainted, he is untarnished, he is a blemishless father in heaven. That's the picture that we need to see. And notice the third thing that the Bible says is that he sat down, the court was convened, and the books were open. What is this picture that Daniel is being shown? It's a courtroom drama. It's the scene of a judge And the judge is taking his place with the gavel in his hand. And the courts are opening the books. What are the books? The books are the records. The records of our rights and the records of our wrongs. The record before God of each one of us is this. Sinner. Tainted with sin. Impure. Unholy. Unfit. Worthy of judgment. This is the image of the Father. The Father is pure, the Father is holy, and the Father is a righteous and perfect judge. Now, America has a hard time with this. We don't like God the judge. We like God the loving Father. In fact, the most common redefinition of God in our country today is God is love. The favorite verse of Americans today is Matthew 7, verse 1. Only the three, verse, three, three first words, do not judge. We love this image of a loving, judgmentless God in heaven. We have defined him on our own terms. We have redefined him from what the scriptures reveal, and we have chosen to cut and pick and choose what we want to know and believe about God. This is our country. This is our society. 
This is where we are as we get more pluralistic and more secular and more progressive in our thinking that we want God to love us, to help us, but please do not judge us. When all the while the most common reference to God in the scriptures is his holiness, not his love. When all the while the Bible makes it absolutely clear that no man can stand before the Father. That the Bible speaks of God's wrath 600 times. And that Jesus, who we tend to think is different than the Father. I hear this, you hear this. I don't know about that Old Testament God. He seems kind of nasty and mean. But Jesus sounds pretty cool. Do you know that no one in Scripture talked more about hell than Jesus? God is holy. God is righteous. God is eternal judge. And he will judge all of us. And we will all stand before his judgment seat. The Bible says in 1 Timothy that that he lives in unapproachable light. He dwells in immortality. This is the Father. This is a picture that we need for the apocalypse. This is what we need to understand about God that we tend to forget. Now, the good news about seeing the Father is that we see that he's holy and righteous and he's a just judge. That means that every wrong will be made right. That means that every wrongdoer will be finally punished for the way that they sinned and in appropriation with the terms in which they sinned. That God is going to make all balances level once and for all. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. That's the good news. The bad news is that none of us come close to being like him. We are undone before the Father. And all of us, all of us fall well short of his standard. What is his standard? Jesus told us his standard in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How do you do that? None of us can. That's the story of Scripture. Thankfully. Thankfully, Daniel's vision continues. Because if you stop there, we'd have no hope. The vision continues, verse 13, here's what happens. In the Ancient of Days, he sits down, he opens the book, and the court is about to be convened, and the judgment is about to be given. Verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, I saw, this will be on the screen, I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. These are very specific words. And to him was given dominion, there's the word again, glory, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should, should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this son of man? This is Jesus coming before the Father, being presented. Please remember that word. He's presented before the Father. The third thing that we need to pack for the apocalypse is a clear picture of Jesus' work. Not Not just the sinfulness of humanity and not just the purity of the Father, but we need to see what Jesus did to bring those two entities back together again. You see, what happened is 
Jesus presented himself before the Father on our behalf and made a way. And he came not to dominate. He came to serve. He came not to subjugate. He came to give his life for us. He humbled himself. He took the nature of a servant. When the world's crowd for dominion and power and authority, Jesus said to his disciples, it should not be that way with you. With you, whoever wants to be the greatest should be servant of all. That's the message of Jesus. This is how our Jesus gets the dominion back that we lost in the Garden of Eden. He serves, he gives, he submits himself to the will of the Father. He passed the test in the wilderness. He hung on the cross, he died, and he rose again in triumph. And that is how we got our dominion back in Jesus Christ's name. This, this, is, an interesting, this is an interesting passage in Daniel 7, is it not? I want to ask you a question. When did it happen? When did it happen? I know when it happens. I want to tell you when it happens. In John chapter 20, it happened. John chapter 20 is resurrection morning. Now, nobody knows it's resurrection morning except the Father and the Son and the angels in the tomb. And the story goes that Mary comes to the tomb with the other Mary, and the women come with spices to embalm the body of Jesus. When they get to the tomb, the stones rolled away. Here's what happens, picking up the story in verse 12 of John chapter 20. She saw in the tomb two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Notice one of the angels was at the head and the other was at the feet. Why is that important? Because this is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was overlaid with gold and on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was an angel on the top and an angel on the feet. And these angels faced each other and touched wings and looked down on the mercy seat and this image that mary sees in the tomb is a picture showing us that jesus christ is the true ark of the new covenant and so she sees the angels and she starts to cry verse 14 she turned around and she saw jesus standing but she did not know that it was jesus how did she not know she walked with this man for two and a half years there's something different about his appearance and jesus said to her woman why are you weeping whom are you seeking supposing him to be the gardener where did we fail the first test in the garden <laughs> she thinks he's the gardener again he is the gardener she said to him sir if you have carried him away tell me where you have laid him and i will take him away jesus said to her mary she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Then this interesting verse, verse 17. Jesus said to her, don't touch me. It says cling in your English Bible, but the better translation is touch. Don't touch me. Why? For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am sending to my Father and to who? Your Father. To my God and to your God. Don't touch me. Why does he say that? A little later in the same chapter, he comes and he appears to the disciples. The same chapter, the same day. We know it's the same day because in verse 19, John opens with, on the evening of that day. This is still resurrection morning, the, the night of resurrection morning. 
On the first day of the week, the doors being locked, but the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And then a few verses later, he tells doubting Thomas, put your hand in my wounds and put your finger in my side and touch me and see that it is me. Why resurrection morning did he tell Mary, don't touch me, and resurrection evening, he tells Thomas, touch me? Because what happened between resurrection morning and resurrection evening is what we just read in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus goes to the throne room where the books are opened and the judgment seat has been convened and God, the eternal righteous judge, is about to pronounce judgment on all creation and Jesus steps in and intervenes for us. And he takes our judgment at the cross and he brings his perfect sacrifice before the Father at the throne room and says, Father, accept this sacrifice on their behalf. And God sees his sacrifice and accepts his sacrifice and lets us off the hook of all our sins because Jesus bore them on the cross. This is what we see. We need to understand what Jesus did on the cross. He took your sins. And he took his body and he presented his perfect, spotless, blemishless sacrifice to heaven for us. Hebrews chapter 9 sums it up. Hebrews chapter 9 calls Jesus our great high priest. And here's what it says. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in, into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verse 26, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And justice is appointed for man to die once and after the judgment, after that the judgment comes. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And he got back our dominion. Because Daniel chapter 7 verse 27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to who? To the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. What we lost in the Garden of Eden, Jesus Christ got back in the presence of God. And I share this message to tell you this. Some of you have got to stop letting Satan lie to you that in Christ Jesus you are not defeated. That in Christ Jesus God does not see your sin. That in Christ Jesus you are not forsaken, you are not forgotten. You are on the, on the mind of your heavenly Father and he loves you and he has given you dominion and authority and power in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, his precious son. You need to understand this. So listen, listen, when the devil tells you you'll never get out of that sin, you need to tell him that's wrong. I have the record right here in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. In Christ, you can overcome your sin. 1 John 3, 8 says that Jesus Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is defeated. At the cross of Jesus Christ, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities 
He put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. This is your reality. This is my reality. And through Jesus you can stand. If the Son sets you free, ye shall be free indeed. Somebody say amen. That's the truth. That's the truth of what Jesus has done for us. And so we close this series on Daniel to tell you, stop living under the circumstances and start triumphing in the name of Jesus Christ. And let his victory be your victory. Let his power be your power. And tell the devil he's a liar. Sin does not have dominion over my life. I, I may have... I may have some things to get over, but I'm not going to get over them. Christ and me. The same Jesus that saved me is the same Jesus that's going to complete me. The same Holy Spirit that made me right before the Father is the one that's going to ever conform me into the image of His Son. He who began a good work in you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day 